Good afternoon and welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at WMCN 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. You're listening to the Bicycle Hour here. In a first, we've got a podcast mashup with Cycling with Watts. In studio with me is Jared Watts. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm pumped to be on it. Yeah, so. this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to have a chance to tell your audience a little bit about our show, too. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I'm super excited to be here, so thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, as our listeners know, every week we do a uh, little velodrome news. Uh, not too much happening. It's kind of the off-season now for track, but uh, the NSC velodrome season is starting up on May 23rd. This is our victory lap season, so you're going to want to make sure that you come out because this is our last season of track racing in Blaine. Uh, you can find out more about that uh, season at nscsports.org slash velo. And then the Minnesota Cycling Center, of course, is in the midst of trying to uh, persuade the Minnesota legislature to provide some funding to get our design work and our land acquisition underway, help us find a space and uh, get started with a lot of our work that we need to do to build the next generation of track cycling here in Minnesota. So uh, learn more about that and contact your legislators at mncyclingcenter.org. All right, Jared, I'd love to find out a little bit more about uh, your podcast and uh, what you do on the show. Yeah, yeah. So the podcast was born last year, just kind of on a whim. I loved listening to cycling podcasts and I was like, you know what? I want to talk about it. I have the power to do it, uh, which is really cool about today's world. So basically my podcast called Cycling with Watts, talk everything about cycling, mainly focus on pro news Mm -hmm. and tech that's coming up in this world. It's just two topics that I love talking about. And so I figured, hey, why not make a podcast about it? That's great. So what's the format generally? Yeah, so it's it's pretty free flowing. You know, I uh, kind of go off the cuff a little bit, but start off with pro news and then go into tech news. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to do with a podcast is kind of get straight to the point. There was uh, some other podcasts that I like listening to, but kind of hear this whole long personal story of the people talking, and I just wanted to get straight into pro news. So you know, a quick intro, get straight into pro news for like twenty minutes or so, mm-hmm. and then talk about tech news for about twenty minutes. Uh, usually sandwiched in there is a nice little segment on Peter Sagan. So I, I love all the <laughs> random things that Peter Sagan does. So do a little Sagan watch uh, sandwich in the middle between there. Fantastic. I'm excited to get into that because um, I have I have feelings yeah. about Sagan. <laughs> so uh, so it'll be interesting to see to hear your perspective on that. Uh, how often do you post new new episodes? Yeah, I try to post every week if, if possible. When the season's a little bit slow, we'll go every other week. It's really nice with the classics right right now because you have a, a big race almost every Saturday yeah. or Sunday. So it's a really easy time uh, to post about once a week. So that, that's my goal every time. And where do people find the show? Yeah, you can find it almost anywhere that podcasts are available. Uh, the most listens that I get is usually on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, kind of the, the big ones out there. That's That's awesome. I'm really excited to hear that you've got a whole year under your belt now and Getting ready for a, another full season, I bet, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so uh, you talked about the spring classics, and this is probably my favorite season of uh, the pro racing uh, calendar. I just love the classics. I haven't had a chance to go over there and watch them in person, but I'm really excited to dive in uh, with you on some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Being a, a little bit newer to the sport, I would say I, I grew up loving cycling and watching the Tour de France with with my dad and Lance Armstrong, but I didn't really know this whole world existed until, you know, a handful of years ago. And so I've learned to just love the classic season as well because a one day race compared to a grand tour, it's just a whole different beast. And it's so fun to watch the team tactics and watch the differences like that, along with all of the muddy pictures that you see at the end of the race, you know, Strada Bianchi, something like that. You just see these mud covered faces, which are awesome to see with the classics. That to me is the most fun, you know, to see the the impact that the weather can have. You know, you, you see all these tiny little guys climbing up these mountains in, in the Tour de France and that's all great. And, you know, I admire the heck out of those guys cause I can't climb to save my life. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to me, the real true cyclists are those guys that didn't just battle the Flanders nightmare. Yeah. It's not something I necessarily want to do in that weather, but it's really fun to watch other people. struggle <laughs> That's in it, so. exactly right. Let them do it for our enjoyment. Right. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, we had obviously some interesting racing this, uh, this last week, uh, just two days ago, we had the E3, what used to be called Harold now it's the E3 Bink Bank uh, race. Did you get a chance to take a look at the results on that? Yeah, I did get to get to watch the results of that. And uh, Dakuna Quickstep again wins another one with Stybar. And so that was pretty incredible to see them dominate. And uh, I think Stybar did a good job of kind of keeping himself covered the entire race until, you know, the last couple of kilometers to go. Mm-hmm. He attacked a little bit there at the end, but he did a really good job. He had Bob Youngles to help him, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm always I'm a big fan of Youngles because I'm I'm from Luxembourg. My family's from Luxembourg, so to have the Luxembourg national champion, yeah, you know, do sure. that well is is really pretty cool. 
Um, and so it was fun to see him do that. And actually, you know, so he helped Sag- Sag- or Steibar, of course, but uh, but then he also got it got himself a top five finish. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. Uh, what are some of the things that, as you looked at those results, what are some of the things that you're thinking about for tomorrow's Ghent Vevelgum? You know, it's interesting because we kind of get, you know, three, four races right in a row, kind of in the same area, kind of the same terrain, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's kind of a good preview for that. And seeing Sagan up in there was positive to see Greg Van Avermaet. I'm a big fan of him, and I kind of feel like he, I mean, he's still a powerful force in cycling, but he just hasn't had that that win per se, in the past couple years. Mm-hmm. I know last year in the tour, uh, he was really edging that stage nine, wanted to win that. He had yellow going into stage nine, going on the Roubaix sector. And yesterday at the E3 race, you know, Avermatt was in the mix, but he didn't necessarily make it all the way there. So I'm excited to see that. We know he's on good form because he was in that mix. Sagan is always exciting. And again, these races right now are just kind of that big lead up to the Tour of Flanders. Mm-hmm. And we're really getting to see that that form come out. I, I don't mind the domination so far by Takunik uh, Quick Step because that's what they're built for. Yep. I, I know people rag on Team Sky for dominating the Grand Tours, but nobody cares that uh, Quick Step dominates the Spring Classics. It's but amazing. I think it's fun. I mean, yeah. they've totally been built for that that style of racing. I mean, they they yeah they'll get a stage win or a sprint finish in the Tour once in a while, but they're totally built all around these spring classics. Yeah. And they have like three or four guys who really could win. it. I mean, you just said Bob Youngle still got a top five finish Yep, and uh, yeah, they had two guys up there. So that's pretty incredible to see. The other guy that I'm uh, curious to see how he'll do tomorrow is uh, Viviani. Oh yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of his because he's just falls in love with the track and races the six days every year. And so of course he's got a special place in my heart, but you know, he can pound out the miles uh, in some of these hard races too. And it was kind of interesting. I don't know how much validity was behind this, but uh, I was reading with uh, Strada Bianchi when Julian Alaphilippe won that maybe L.A. Viviani was the the leader going into the race, especially being a sprinter that can come down to a a sprint finish. And it, it did in a way, not necessarily the big bunch sprinters that, we thought with being a flatter course, but yeah, Elio Viviani is super dangerous. I think he had the most wins mm-hmm. stage wise, like 16, 17 last year. So yeah. a super dangerous rider. Yep. And especially Gent Welvigan, probably going to come down to a bunch sprint finish. He is definitely a contender. Yeah, this is definitely the kind of a course that can really do, do mm-hmm. him some good. I mean, I think he could really do well on that course. And there's the the image last year of him pounding on his handlebars yes. as he took second to yep. Peter Sagan. Yep. So it, I think he definitely has a little bit of revenge out for it at this race. It'll be really interesting to see. You know, one of the things I noticed in the finish of uh, uh, last year's, I think, was it uh, uh, Perry Roubaix, I guess, when uh, when Sagan was, you know, all the way up there all by himself. He kind of pretty much did it by himself mm-hmm. uh, when he was out there with Dillier. But, uh, you know, he doesn't really have as good of a team wrapped around him. I mean, he takes a lot of pulls off of other teams, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, for sure. He He's done a really good job of following the right wheel. I think Strada Bianchi, he could have been in that mix, unfortunately, with uh, like a kilometer left to go. He was the one on the front of that sprint train. Yep. Julian Alaphilippe was like three or four wheels back. He was in the right position. Sagan was just a little bit out of position. But that's what happens when you don't have as strong of a team. I know he's surrounded by people that he likes on that team. Doesn't mean they can always produce the best sprint train. Yeah. So he, he has had to do a little bit all by himself, and he's done an amazing job of it. Yeah, it's so. pretty it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. Uh, you know, the women's race is going to be pretty interesting tomorrow. I think there's a number of contenders um, for the for that prize. Um, Marta Bastianelli is, of course, the winner from last year, um, but she's got a new team. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out for her. Yeah, and the the race for the women has only been around since uh, 2012, and there's been no repeat finisher. Right. And so kind of both the men's and women's, there's been no, uh, I believe, four-time winner. And Sagan could be the first four-time winner, and Bastianelli could be the first two-time winner yeah. for both the men's and women's. So it'd be kind of cool to see records set uh, in a way. I like cheering for some underdogs, but I also like cheering for the, the person who's supposed to win it. And to see two records broken, that'd be fun to cheer for both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't count out Julian Dore from from Belgium. I mean, this is kind of a race that's built for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if she can uh, step up. Um, and then, of course, Marion Voss, you know, is Voss just, boss. So. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. She's just unbelievable. I mean, she's a monster in all these races. And so it'll be interesting to see how she can do tomorrow. Yeah, too. and just coming off uh, that cyclocross season again, just shows how dominant she she is. And in the past, she's been 
dominant across all forms of cycling. And we're seeing on the men's side, too, this emergence of good cyclocross riders in the classic. So, of course, Mariana Voss has a good shot to win it. And I, I like uh, Bulls Dolman as a team in general. I do, they're, too. They're just a strong team. And so I think Chantel Black has an opportunity to win it as well. Yeah, they've uh, got a couple of different people they, they can throw at it yeah. uh, on that Bulls-Dolman uh, team. It's it's going to be an interesting race, and I, I particularly like it because it's a good indicator of form for uh, for Flanders. Yeah, exactly. So Right there with you. <clears throat> so I was looking at the uh, the calendar, the, the forecast for the weekend. It sounds like it's going to be fairly dry. I mean, it'll probably be in the 50s over there, so we probably won't get much in the way of garbage weather. Um, so we should, it should be a really fast race. Yeah. The, the only ray of sunshine and that's <laughs> ironic because one person said that it might be rainy. Now this was only one person. Yep. So you never exactly know, but that that's kind of the trade-off that you get is you get a nice fast race when it's dry and then you just get the amazing pictures if it's all wet and muddy. Yeah. So. Well, and you know, there's, there's plenty of things that can change pretty quickly in these, these Belgian races you could have, For I mean, sure. with, especially with a five or six hour race, you're going to have a lot of stuff happen from the morning when they start. Till, uh, you know, later in the afternoon. Yeah. And covering 250 kilometers, you know, I here in Minnesota, I always feel like there's this weird line. I travel a lot to Rochester. That's where I grew up. There's this weird line in Cannon Falls and that's only like 30 miles away mm -hmm. and it can be daylight in Minneapolis and rainy in Rochester. So again, you, you can never know what can happen with the weather and how yeah, it can change. Absolutely. Well, I hope it stays dry because I think this will be a fun sprinters race and I'd really like to see that, you know, bunch sprint at the tail end. Yeah. So I don't think there's any real major climbs. I mean, they've got a couple of them that they showcase in for Flanders next week, but you know, in general, it's, it's really a pretty flat and sprinter oriented course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are you looking for in terms of uh, the Ronda uh, next weekend. Yeah, I'm looking for an absolute fascinating race. Of course, like <laughs> everybody else, I want to see just some, so much suffering as we're seeing the lion of Flanders flag flying, all the smoke popping. I mean, that's such an iconic picture that you get every single time. And so really looking forward to that. And I'm looking for some people to mix it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, Matthew Vanderpool, he's making his uh, classics debut. Yeah. I mean, real classics debut. Yep. I guess you could say he's done a couple other races. Uh, recently, but he's just coming off an injury. He'll start getting Wevelgum. We'll see kind of how he is on form. You have Wout Van Art as well. He's been, I, I don't think either one of those guys is going to win it, but they always make the race interesting. Absolutely. And especially guys coming from a cyclocross season where they're racing for an hour, hour and a half, somewhere along that. And then Wout Van Art and Strada Bianchi, that's a six, six hours and 40 minutes was the winning time with Julian Alphilippe. And he's still there pushing it at the end. Yeah. So I think that part is really exciting, starting to see this new emergence of of cyclists and Stybar, of course, having the, his cyclocross background as well. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we're talking about the, the cyclocross and that fitness is a huge issue, uh, for those, those racers. I, Corey Coogan Sizek was in here a couple of weeks ago and was talking about that being a big challenge for her going into the summer is getting out of that mindset that an hour is, that's how long your race is and trying to get in some of those, you know, longer, longer events. And so it will be interesting to see if those cross guys can at least hide in the pack for a while. And uh, and keep some of their matches for later in the race. Yeah, I think that's one thing that that maybe has held uh, Wout Van Aert back because he's had a lot of these, you know, top ten, top five, top three finishes. Mm -hmm. But does he have enough to give it as much as he can at the end of the race? Exactly. Where these guys like Julian Philippe. I mean, he was uh, he really came on the scene last year, but he rode the Tour de France. He's just used to to that grind of these long stages yeah. and can put it out at the end. And especially if you get a solo attack, you know, which you all so often see in Flanders, you know, you get somebody who goes out with like five or 10 kilometers to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when, you know, those cross guys can get turned inside out pretty fast. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if they can follow, uh, follow some of those wheels. Yeah, with. I agree. Um, you know, the interesting thing for me about Flanders is, is how Nikki Terpstra is going to do. I'm a big uh, Nikki Terpstra fan. And, uh, you know, he won it last year, but he's on a brand new team this year. So it'll be really interesting to see if he can actually get a team behind him to help him be in the right spot. Yeah. And I think Nicky Terpstra has another he's not Sagan like, but he's a guy that doesn't always ruffle the right right feathers in the Peloton. And there's been some discussion around him being a bad teammate, being yep. a good teammate, you know. Whatever you want to say, there is a guy I follow on Instagram, uh, Eamon Lucas. He's a, a U.S. rider, mm -hmm. but he lives uh, close to Nikki Terpstra, so he does a lot of riding with Terpstra. So watching Instagram live stories of him is interesting, and you get what the, the media says and then what you're seeing on Instagram. And I think he's a good character. I liked what he did last year mm -hmm. uh, when he won Flanders. Maybe it wasn't... Uh, 
team orders when he won, but right. he still won and he's on direct energy this year, which definitely not the caliber of team that different story. Yeah. That quick step is, but I, he's an exciting rider for sure. Yeah. I, uh, I had the chance to meet him after the year he won his Perry Roubaix and, uh, it was pretty exciting to get a chance to talk to him about that experience. And, you know, especially being a track rider, finishing on the track and taking it home that way is, is a pretty cool experience. That's super sweet. I'm very jealous of that, that encounter. <laughs> that was really cool. The women's will be interesting too, because, uh, Vanderbruggen is not coming back, uh, this year to, uh, uh, to, you know, defend her title. So, um, you know, I'm sort of curious, you mentioned, uh, Chantal block earlier in the, in the conversation and she won het newsblad earlier this year. So I think she's got a real shot at, at taking the, the, uh, tour Flanders this year. Yeah. And again, just to echo that she's got a good team around her, you know, mm-hmm. kind of my favorites for these next three races are all the same person because of the, of their team and who I want to see win both on the men's and women's side. Yeah. So that, that part is exciting. And then, uh, Perry Roubaix last year, we saw Taylor Finney, have a, have a pretty good one being being an American, which yep. is cool to see. We yep. got Corin Rivera this year on the women's side, yeah. as well. So and she won it in 2017, so she's not unfamiliar with the podium and in Flanders. Exactly, and so I'm excited to see Americans do well in cycling, especially after maybe, maybe some of our dark past of American cycling to yeah. really see kind of this emergence back with Americans being in the the pro peloton. Absolutely. This is my favorite race. Tour Flanders is my favorite race of the whole season. I just love it because it just showcases all of the great, you know, climbs and epic locations of, of Flanders. And I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah. And uh, talk about a bucket list race. I mean, aside from just watching racing, the things that I've seen on TV, the pictures, I mean, it just looks like such a party and those Flemish people love their cycling and it just looks like such a fun atmosphere to be at you know a lot of these cross races kind of in that same regard mm-hmm. where it just looks like this big party and man those fans go wild so definitely a, a bucket list race that i'd love to go watch one day yeah we i had the chance to go to the tour of flanders museum in odenard a few years ago and it's a really cool experience they've got some really fun interactive things where you can ride essentially a trainer that's built on like wood blocks so you can feel what it's like to ride on the cobbles and boy i'll tell you it's not that much fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen it on YouTube. And yeah, even like uh, here in St. Paul uh, by the U of M campus, there's that little section of cobbles. Yes. And every time I ride over that, going to go over the the bridge there, I'm like, how do they do it for yeah, as long as they do it? So. Yeah, it's a miserable kind of experience. And I'm, I'm anxious to talk about some technology uh, that they use in some of these races coming up a little bit later because, uh, you know, they certainly have to have everything running just right. Yeah, for to sure. Make that make that work. Um, you know, it's, it'll be interesting. They've, they essentially have kept that same race uh course from last year there's really nothing new so riders should know what to expect out of that race um you know assuming the weather's good yeah and that's kind of another fun thing about all of these classics is for the most part they're they're very similar races from Mm -hmm. year to year to year so uh these riders who have done it over and over and over again i think it's interesting to listen to uh to lance armstrong he has his podcast and say what you want to say about Lance Armstrong. He, he does go into detail of like what it's like to ride over these cobbles when it's wet, when it's dry, yeah. what you're looking for on the street. And that part is so fascinating, like the level of detail that these riders know and have to look at mm-hmm. while they're traveling with 60K an hour, something yeah. like that, surrounded by a bunch of bunch of guys going just as fast. And so that part is really fascinating how much attention and detail to those cobbles they have to have. And you see the guys go out, swing out on the the right or left side so mm-hmm. that they're on a, a flatter section, a smoother section. And we've seen Sagan do it. I think he's he's done that really brilliantly where he's riding on what looks to be like three inches wide of flat surface so he doesn't have to go over the cobbles. You know, that bike handling skill, that's one of the things that blows my mind about watching these races. You know, you're not to mention you're on that narrow, narrow path that, you know, could be disaster in, you know, less than inches away. But then the, the how quickly they change direction you know, in the midst of five or six people around them and they change like 90 degrees to get over to the side of the road or to get back up on the top of that little hump in the middle of the, the cobbles. And yeah. Blows me away that they can do that in such horrible conditions. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty fascinating to watch. And then to have the wherewithal of like, OK, I got to attack here. I'm watch. I, I know this guy's heart rate next to me or something like that. Like I know exactly where his level is. And to keep all that together is very impressive and yeah. the strategies that go along with it. Not to mention, you know, some of them are leaving skin on the road because it crashes in front of them or whatever. And the fact that they can get back on their bikes and, and handle it like that is very impressive. Yeah. For the minor crashes that I've had on a bike, thank, thankfully, I've been fortunate. It's yeah, devastating to see some of those road rashes and the fact of 
how quick they can get back up on the bike too. Cause they're just so focused on if I crash, I got to get back on my bike. Yeah. Regardless if it's safe or not, right. you know, they're just focused on finishing that race. Absolutely. Well, and you don't have much choice because you know, a lot of times in those cobbled sectors, your team car can't get there. Yeah. You know, so you're five or 10 minutes away from getting help from a team car. And uh, that can change your race pretty fast if you can't get back on the bike. Yeah, I think such a great example of that was in the Tour de France last year on that stage nine in Roubaix. Even though it mm-hmm. wasn't uh, wasn't a classic, they were still riding a lot of those classic uh, courses. Sections, yep. And it was just devastating to like Roman Bardet. I think he had three or four flats, something like that. Yeah. Couldn't get the team car up there. And that, in a way, took away his tour right. uh, in a sense. Not not totally, but it definitely hindered him. And Put him so, on the back foot for sure. Yeah, you really see how devastating it is to not have your team car right there and ready to go. Yep. If you just joined us, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. In studio with us today is Jared Watts from the Cycling with Watts podcast. We've been talking all things spring classics, uh, and we're just about to get to, uh, you know, I guess the granddaddy of them all, the Paris-Roubaix, which is coming up in the middle of April. Uh, Do you think Sagan has got what it takes to repeat? I, I think Sagan can basically do whatever whatever he wants. I, I think he's that strong of a racer that, yes, I think he could repeat whether or not he, he wants to. You know, we learn kind of towards the end of seasons or whatever what people were actually targeting and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I wonder if he is actually targeting Roubaix this year for that repeat or is he going to be focused on like a Liege-Bastogne-Liege win right. later a little down the road or a Flanders win where that's his like A race coming up. Mm-hmm. I definitely think he's got the talent to do it. Uh, being kind of that all-arounder. He can grind it out on the cobbles. He can sprint at the end. He knows how to stay in line, stay in the right position, which is just so key for a lot of these riders maybe who don't have a full team with them because at the end of a race, usually... Uh, let's take Walt Van Art for example. He may not have the ability to sprint like Sagan does, and at the end of these races, he's the only Yumbo Visma rider up there. So right. that's where Sagan does have such a deadly advantage. And you know, it was that positioning and his ability to you know follow the wheel and that kind of thing was on perfect display last year in uh, in Roubaix. You know, when he and Dillier got onto the track, and Dillier is a track racer, so you know he was in a great position, uh, but he could not shake Sagan off his wheel. And they rode around that track. And I got to say, you know, not being a track rider, Sagan actually made a perfect track move. Yeah, to he come out well. of the draft and it was it was just perfect. So, you know, I'm not a huge Sagan fan, but I, I was very impressed. Yeah. Um, and honestly, a little bit disappointed with Dillier because I thought, you know what, dude, you're a track rider. You know what it's like to be in that match sprint situation. And he kept him in his in his uh, in his rearview mirror pretty well. But he let him get away with that dive, and you know I thought he could have taken an opportunity for a track stand or something like that. So yeah, and I want to know how that conversation went when they broke away. Yeah, you know I kind of feel like as high and mighty as Sagan is, it was like, hey Delia, like I'll get you to the finish line, I'll get you second, I'm gonna win this race. Yeah, but you and I can work together. I'll give you second place. I feel like that's how it went. I have no idea how well, it actually that's, went. That's but. a good. I never <laughs> thought about it that way, but you know that's a that's a very legit way to think about it. Because, yeah, coming into the end, I was like, oh, there's no there's no shot Dillier wins this just right. because Sagan, who he is. Yeah. And it was a huge uh, placement for Dillier as well. It was. Second. It was a great finish. I mean, he's gotten some really good finishes over the last couple seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really moved up in the in the peloton generally. But, yeah, you're right. Um, it's hard to hard to think that anybody can beat Sagan yeah, when and you're then- wheel to wheel like that. To, to show the, of course, I have some favoritism towards Sagan, but to see the brilliance of him last year when he was uh, fixing his his stem on the road and stuff yeah. like that, I thought that was funny to watch. And you see that stuff in the classic season. Totally. You see it in other races, but just the the brutalness of the cobbles can do so many random things to that bike. It's the uh, it's the one set of races that you can really actually get those guys to be their own mechanics and know what they're doing on a bike, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's exciting. <laughs> you know, one thing that I think is going to be interesting, too, is that they are actually going to be paying uh, tribute to Michael Goulart's, uh, who died last year during the race. So they've actually renamed that sector uh, in his honor. And I thought that was a pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool thing. To yeah, do. that was really tough to watch last year to know yeah. that somebody died. And it wasn't from a, a crash because that is definitely something all these riders know can happen yep. when you're going down these crazy descents. But to have a heart attack. And then I didn't know as well as they, they kind of dove into that a little bit. And I heard that maybe there was kind of this string in Belgian cycling of 
riders dying from heart conditions. Mm -hmm. And not like I went too deep into it, but it was just an interesting thing to why that was happening. And so, yeah, I was really sad to see last year, but I'm glad that they're paying the respects in this way. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of those things where these guys push their and women push their bodies to the absolute limit. And, you know, riding your bike for six hours is not good for you. That, that is very true. That is very true. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, I, I come from a track perspective where six minutes is a long race, mm-hmm. but, you know, six hours on a bike, man, it's not that much fun. It's uh, yeah, it's a long time. Especially Another- if you're going at top speed, right? I mean, if you're going full gas, you know, which these guys are for the most part. Yeah, Strada Bianchi last last week, that was almost 200 miles. I think it was like 190 miles, something like that exact. Yeah. And they finished in six hours and 40 minutes. Like that is absolutely mind-boggling how fast they're going. I mean, that's that's from here to Fargo, basically, and it takes you three hours to drive there. Yeah. (laughs) Now, some interesting thing I saw Velon posted of Strada Bianchi, though, the average power for Greg Van Avermaet and for like first four hours of the race it was 170 watts yeah that was super interesting yeah i've always said it, it is easier to sit in the peloton still incredibly absolutely. difficult what they're doing but yeah you at least get some savings so. absolutely yeah it would be interesting to see how that how that plays out you know as you look at the season coming up what are the teams that you think are interesting i mean what teams are are you watching yeah the uh, i'm a big team sky fan and say what you want to say about them they it back in 2014 kind of seeing Chris Froome, uh, 2015 as well, seeing Chris Froome and the way that he was, it got me back into loving pro cycling again. Yeah. And so I, that's, that's what got me back into it. I loved their jerseys at the time. So I always like watching team sky. I like their dominance, but some teams that are, are really fascinating for me to watch this year is EF education first. Mm-hmm. I, I love Rafa as a brand. I have a lot of their stuff. I, I really like them. So I like this kind of new style of racing that they're trying to put forth. They also have a lot of Americans on the team. Mm-hmm. I just think they're exciting. Their kit is very exciting. It's something that's very recognizable in the Peloton. And then the other team that I'm really excited about is Team Yumbo Visma, especially with guys like Wout Van Art. Mm-hmm. And they're they're making some big waves in the Pro Peloton. They had a great tour last year. And kind of definitely, I think, amongst the cycling media, there could be that kind of surprise team to upset Team Sky in the in the Tour de France, I mean, you got like Movistar. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a surprise if they upset, but Yumbo right. Visma for sure would be a surprise. Yeah, you know, you talked about sort of the different things that Education First is doing, and I I love that they're really focusing on, you know, getting connected with fans and really taking their sponsors' efforts into, into their thought process when they think about what races they do, how do they participate. You know, they're doing a lot of gravel stuff, and they're really getting interacting with fans in a different way which yeah. is pretty cool. And I think that's really cool. Rafa as a brand uh, is trying to push this whole explore thing, whatever that means to somebody, but EF education first also side note, I'm so glad that they shortened their name this year. So it's just EF education first, not EF education first powered by Cannondale draft pack, whatever. So <laughs> right. it's a lot easier to say, but yep. it's cool to see that they want to take on races like dirty Kanza mm-hmm. and some of these long endurance grueling races that have been basically amateur focused and are yep. starting to build maybe a little bit of a pro reputation. So that, that part is exciting. And I hope, I hope people embrace it at those races. Cause that can be a little bit of a mixed bag. Like, Oh, now we got pros coming into this amateur race. Yeah. So I, I hope they do that tastefully as well. I, I do too. I mean, you could, they could totally dominate the scenario over there, of course, but uh, I think they've, it, they feel like they've got the right approach to it. You know, it feels like they're doing the right things. Yeah, so. and I hope they're able to bring maybe more crowds. You know, somebody like, I, I would love to ride Dirty Kanza one day. Uh, that would be super awesome, but I wouldn't go down to Dirty Kanza to just watch anybody. I would go down to watch EF Education first, though. Yeah. So maybe they'll be able to bring in some more crowd, bring more people to the mm-hmm. sport of cycling. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Yumbo Vismo as well. I'm, I'm really curious to see if they can sort of move past their history of being uh, sprinter-oriented and really sort of expand and be a true competitor in the tour. Yeah, with uh, Primoz Roglic. Yeah. Uh, incredible to know that he came from a ski jumping background. I and know. He took fourth in the tour last year, but then you have Dylan Grunewagen as well, who has yeah. been a pretty dominant sprinter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's always... It, it's an interesting kind of debate that you have to go within a, within a team. Are you going to take a sprinter or are you going to take a GC leader to the tour de France? I never knew that that really existed maybe five, six years ago. Yeah. And to really understand that you got to put all your eggs kind of in one basket. That's right. And so th- that'll be a little bit of an interesting mix, but I hope Primoz Roglic does have a shot at mm-hmm. being that contender. Cause he was very exciting last year's tour, especially in those late stages when, I mean, he was going for broke and yeah. he made it very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. The guy that I really am hopeful for in the tour is uh, Quintana. 
You know, he's been, you know, second best and third best a bunch of times already. And I just love to see him like finally climb to the top step. Yeah. I feel like I've been waiting for that for uh, five, five, six years because when I got into it, he was the rival to Froome and to Team Sky. And it's just like every year, nothing has gone his way. And I I didn't necessarily agree with the three-pronged attack that they did last year with Valverde and Landa, but it, it, of course, didn't work as they wanted because nobody really did that that well. But Mm -hmm. I I would love to see Quintana because he is a fiery Ryder, he's short, so it gives me hope seeing a sh- seeing a short, small guy out there as well. Now he weighs significantly less, but yeah. it's exciting to see that. I mean, seriously, he could hide behind his bike. He's so yes. skinny; it's crazy. And the, this wave of Colombian cyclists too right now is very exciting. You know, even with uh, Team Sky, I think they had a talk with the Colombian president, maybe about having a state-sponsored cycling team. It yeah. ended up not happening, but this resurgence of the Colombian cyclists is very mm-hmm. exciting as well with the, the tour of Colombia. You got big riders too, like Rigoberto Uran and the mm-hmm. education first. He's a contender as well. Yep. So you have a lot of Colombians in the mix too. Well, and given the terrain in Colombia, I mean, you can't leave your house without going uphill. So yeah, you know, for sure. It's a great training ground for sure. Yeah. And then to see <laughs> guys like Fernando Gaviria moving over to a new team this year, mm-hmm. but he's a Colombian who is a killer sprinter. And yeah. so they have the, they have the sprinter side down and then they of course have a ton of climbers with that Colombian name. You know, I've, I've seen articles and stuff that talk about how crazy for cycling the Colombian culture is. And it's, you know, almost like Belgian level of insanity for cycling. Yeah. I've seen cool. YouTube videos of Nairo Katana's face just painted on buildings and yeah. all of this stuff. So it looks like a really fun culture to be in. And the, the crowds that have come out for the tour of Colombia have been pretty incredible to see. They really have been. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see how, uh, how that stuff plays out, uh, throughout the, throughout the season, especially interesting to see who, who decides they're going to go after like the Giro, uh, early in the season next month. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that will be exciting. And you kind of get this, this weird mix of nobody wants to to make that commitment. Cause then if you're riding the Giro, it's, it's pretty hard to, to win the tour. And that yep. was, a, it's been that way for almost all of history, mm-hmm. but we saw it again last year with Chris Froome. And so I, I am excited to see who's going to step up for the Giro. And I think one of the Yates brothers is, is going to step up for that. And to see the dominance of British cycling right now, we'll yeah. see if they can bring home another one. Yep. It would be really cool to see that. And Yates has definitely got a shot at it. Yeah. And that Mitchelton Scott team in general has been exciting to, to watch. I think, they're a little bit of ahead of where like an EF education first wants to be kind mm-hmm. of this newer team trying to do things a little bit differently. And Mitchelton Scott kind of just coming into their form last year, uh, winning the Volta, of course, definitely the biggest one to their name. So, yeah, you know, I want to go back a little bit to some of the things you, you were talking about with the cyclocross riders. It's really interesting to me to see how many of them now are really successfully making a transition to the road. It seems, you know, for the, from a fitness perspective, if nothing else, they're at a really significant disadvantage. Yeah. And I, to, to a certain degree, I'm a little bit surprised that we're seeing this wave come onto the road because of how big cyclocross is getting. I know in the European side still road dominates across the board. It's the number one sport mm-hmm. to, to watch when it comes to cycling, all of those things. So to a little bit extent, I'm, I'm surprised, like, why not just specialize in your cyclocross, become the biggest star you can be. Yep. But from the road riding perspective and being a fan, I love to see it as well because they're thrown in a mix. You're just seeing different names and that yep. part is exciting. And I think this classic season just speaks so much to them because their body is used to those types of terrains. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is a different beast. You know, when you go from road biking to mountain biking, the first thing a roadie wants to do is get off their saddle when they're climbing. And that's the worst thing you can do. That's right. And so that's where I think these guys have a really big advantage of like, how do I need to weight my body when I'm going over these cobbles up a climb? They just know how to stick to the ground, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, so. it makes a huge difference in terms of the way they approach a race and uh, and when they would choose to attack or, you know, how they would approach, you know, chasing down a group and that kind of thing for sure. But I think that fitness thing is definitely, definitely key because I still think Van Art or Vanderpool whoever you want to put in there who are the cyclocross stars now and making the emergence over. I still think they got one or two years left of that experience. And it's kind of a weird phenomena in cycling, you know, major league baseball, you can have a guy come up through the ranks in the minors really quickly, take a Bryce Harper and they can dominate right when they get on the road. Right. It's a little bit different in cycling. There is this growing period where you have to build that endurance. You have to build that mental toughness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's some things with the front of your brain being yeah. 25 as well and how that affects you. <laughs> right. 
And so these guys need a couple years to just get the get that experience in them. And so I think Van Art still is uh, one or two years away from winning one of these classic races, partly because of that fitness, partly just figuring it all out on the road and yeah. how, how to sprint after six hours of riding where in cyclocross it's after 55 minutes of riding or something yeah. like that. I mean, your training regimen is so different when you're talking about that kind of an endurance effort as opposed to something like a cyclocross or even a crit race. Yeah, exactly, you know? where you're you're slowing down and speeding up, but it's very, very quick times. You're not really doing it for like 20, 30 seconds, right. maybe not on the road. Now you need to put down that five power or five minute FTP. And that's got to be really high. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a total different use of power too. Right. I mean, it's all just like massive amounts of sheer like energy, right? Like you said, for 15, 20 seconds. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, really holding on to something at the top end for that long. Yep. And how to ride effectively in a Peloton. I yeah. mean, in a cyclocross race, right. whoever can get out on the front usually has a very high advantage of winning exactly. the race. And now you got to sit in people's wheels. Yeah. And you're not trying to ride against ride somebody's wheel in a cross race very often. Yeah. You know, if you've got a group, it's like three people. Yep. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for those couple of guys. Yeah, I'm excited to, to see the emergence of it. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at WMCN 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're doing a co-podcast with Cycling with Watts, Jared Watts here in the studio with us um, here on campus. We are looking for transgender and gender nonconforming people. The Cognitive Neuroscience Lab is investigating how gender identity influences visual shape and word processing and is looking for transgender and gender non-conforming people to participate in their research. Studies located in Olin Rice Hall and takes uh, one and three quarters to two hours and participants will be paid $20. Participants must be native English speakers. For more information or to schedule an appointment, contact the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at B-U-R-G-L-A-B at McAllister.edu. We've talked a lot about the riders, Jared, that are uh, going to be performing in the upcoming classics. Um, I'm curious to hear, you know, you, obviously you are part of a bicycle company. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the uh, technology that we're going to see in some of these races and we have been seeing so far this spring. Yeah. There's there, a lot of frame stuff that's really changing. Yeah, exactly. And there's kind of two forms of tech too. There's the the real small minute details that people do their bikes and then the big things like frames and this year uh, last year maybe more to say uh, the tour de france came and a bunch of tech usually comes out for that a bunch of arrow frames came out and arrow has definitely been a trend over the past 10 years or so but how does an arrow frame handle on some of these classics you know last year we saw sagan win on a, a perry roubaix bike mm -hmm. or on a roubaix bike by specialized i yep. should say now I, I believe that's probably a little bit different than the the bike that you can actually buy in stores but you know he's trying to prove or specialized is trying to prove that you can be at a high level winning on an endurance style frame something mm -hmm. like that something that has the future shock in the headset something that is a little bit more comfortable for the everyday rider. So mm -hmm. things like that, I think are really interesting. And we've had this full arrow swing and they're making endurance frames that are more arrow. They're making climbing bikes that are more arrow. So everybody kind of has arrow in the back of their mind when mm -hmm. they're putting out these frames. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see how that, how that trend continues, especially like you said, for the classic season, because it's such a different ride, you know, when you're trying to just preserve your shoulders and your upper body, from all the pounding that you get on the, on the road. And if you're over the bars, you know, and your front, your nose is away over that front wheel, like you are on a lot of those aero bikes, it's, it's a different ride altogether. Yeah. And I think it's exciting too, to see aero wheels in the, in the Peloton as well, where maybe like 10 years ago, you tried to bring your bombshell aluminum wheels <laughs> right. to these races. You weren't doing it on carbon wheels. No. And now across the board, everybody's doing it with carbon wheels. And then, you got the disc brakes and mm -hmm. you, you got a lot of things with wheels, tubeless tires, all these things that could be a factor. And then you could go into a whole world of tech on tire pressure and right. the, the actual tire that you use for it. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You talked about those, those carbon wheels and a lot of them are deep section too. And, you know, obviously the wind in, in Belgium coming off the ocean can be brutal. Yeah. And you watch some of these echelons that form in some of these spring races. And to me, you would want as small of a section on your wheels as possible in a race like that. Yeah. And that's such an interesting dilemma too, that the mechanics and, and the riders have to figure out before the race, what is the wind going to be like? Right. What, how deep of a wheel do you go? 
for those wind conditions. And it's mm-hmm. very interesting how that all plays into the race. I wish we got to to hear more of those conversations of like what they chose, you know, in uh, I think Formula One and other stuff. You get to see some of these like live stats. What's what's their tire pressure, something like that, and to yep. nerd out and to be able to see that <laughs> stuff. I'd love to see it because I think that the technology is there. But it's definitely an interesting call of how deep you want to go, mm-hmm. and maybe you're only going to hit wind for a little bit, so you got to survive that little bit of section. Right. But the arrow over the the four or five hours is going to be the best make play. A bit, make a difference for sure. Yeah, and especially you know because really when you think about Perry Roubaix, at least only about a third of the race is actually on cobbles. The rest of it is on road sections. And so, you know, yeah, you got to fight through those longer cobbled sections. But, you know, realistically, it's still a road race. Yeah. Big misconception, I think, is people think the entire thing is this just long cobbled, like for 100 miles on cobbles. Right. Where really, you're only hitting a couple K's for each yeah, cobbled section. That's so right. You really do have to factor that in. And that's a huge thing where tire pressure comes into the mix because... Yep. Yeah, a third of your race is on cobbles, but two thirds of it is on road mm-hmm. where you want to be running that higher pressure. So yep. that part's really interesting. You know, the, another technology that's become really popular is sort of these pseudo suspension systems. You know, like I had a chance to ride the Trek Domine, uh, the 2019 this year, and uh, it's a really comfortable bike. And, you know, the way they've got those couple of spacers where you're almost the frame doesn't connect to itself, you know, is, is a pretty interesting uh, approach to that. Yeah, and especially to see that on an aero bike too, where 10 years ago, an aero bike was, it had one job to be aero. Right. And today where we can have an aero bike that is getting remarkably more comfortable, yeah, with that with that Trek, that is their flagship aero bike, but mm-hmm. yet they're giving, I think from a customer side too, they're giving them the opportunity to adjust that mm-hmm. as well and give them some suspension, give them a little bit of flex in there. I think Pinarello has a bike, the K10, that has a little shock where mm-hmm. the seat stays come up and meet the, the seat tube. I, I've never ridden it, but it looks like it gives them a little bit of uh, a little bit of bounce in Team Sky. I, I haven't seen them ride it this year, but I know last year in the Classics they were riding that bike to give them a little bit of, of bounce there. And yeah. then on the gravel side, I don't know if we'll ever see it come into pro racing, but we're starting to get small suspensions in the fork. And I, I know the Lau mm. fork, which isn't your yep. true suspension, right? that's really big in, in gravel. But even at uh, Dirty Kansas last year when they showcased a bunch of gravel tech, there was gravel bikes with full mm-hmm. suspension on there. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to me about those uh, suspension, quote unquote, type bikes is is power transfer. You know, I mean, for me, I'm I'm much more interested in a comfortable ride as opposed to maximizing, you know, the effort that goes through the pedals. But it's a real concern for a a guy in a pro peloton. Yeah, I think the needs definitely for a pro racer and the 95 percent of the rest of the cycling world are, are very different where. You know, especially in TTs, we see it all the time. It's not a comfortable position, right. but that's their job. They, yep. They've got to do that. Being a recreational cyclist, I, I I like to race, but do I really want to put myself through hours and hours and hours of uncomfortable training? No. To maybe win an <laughs> amateur uh, time trial race. Right. No. And, to win and, a pair of socks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and pay to get into that race that's as right. well. Yeah, so. that's right. Uh, and so for <laughs> the the gravel side as well, I think it's that that same same principle is we need to make things that are comfortable for the everyday cyclist because they're the ones who are spending the most money on this as well. And and the pros get to have what they want mm-hmm. and they need that for their ride. But the majority of us don't. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you talk about that and you see so many of these technologies come out, especially around the tour where the big product announcements come and how they integrate that onto those those pros bikes. Uh, but then how it trickles down to, to everyday riding. Yeah. One of the the biggest things that I saw coming out of the tour this year where I was like, yes, that is awesome from a consumer standpoint was BMC came out with their uh, Time Machine Aero bike. And I I think it's a beautiful bike. But what they did is they put a little section for a toolbox down by the water bottle cages. And I just thought that that was so smart because the pros don't need that. It's not on any of the BMC bikes in the Peloton. Right. But it's really smart for a consumer. I, I don't go out on a ride without a saddlebag, without some form of carrying my stuff. That's right. And uh, there is people out there who poo-poo saddlebags. And so for that, I thought that that was brilliant. I know Specialized has done that as well on last year's Roubaix model. They mm-hmm. have that down by the bottom bracket. And that's where I really congratulate bike companies who are building this aero bike that consumers see on TV, but they're tweaking it a little bit to make it right for the consumer. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You know, that sort of a related trend is this whole idea of the, uh, water bottle tool bucket. 
Yes. You know, that's a sort of a weird solution to that problem of, oh, I don't want to have a, uh, a saddlebag. But, yep. And know. I did that last year. And then I realized I like going out with two water bottles. So I, I that was exactly that what one. I've, I've thought about that from time to time, too. And I think, well, there are those rides where you need an extra bottle. If it's yep. extra hot or, you know, you want to go longer than a couple hours. Yep. You got to have that extra bottle. Unless you stop, you're not getting more water. So No, no, exactly. I mean, if you ride to the bar, it's one thing. Yeah. But <laughs> that's a totally different environment. Are there some other things that you're seeing in terms of the way the drivetrains are are playing out in the Peloton these days? Yeah, especially with, uh, we had Aqua Blue last year come out with that, that one buy on mm-hmm. the 3T Strata, and that did not go well. And we didn't really know that until Aqua Blue fell apart. It was sad to see any team fall apart, but really after Aqua Blue fell apart, uh, I remember listening to Adam Blythe just destroy that. I mean, he yeah. hated it because the what they need in a bike with the races that they're doing and the elevation that they have to climb just is not right for a pro racer but for a consumer like a one by for myself in minnesota that's all i need i'm not doing this massive climbing but then that was only a one by 11 and now we have shram access which is one by 12 Mm -hmm. and uh katusha and Trek are both riding that. And so we'll see how that plays out over the season. Unfortunately, nobody can really badmouth it during the season. Right. So we don't know if it really is bad, but it looks really cool. And you have, you just have more range of gears. And so I mm-hmm. think that it could play out really well over, uh, over the racing season. Now I think they have the ability still to run a two by, mm-hmm. but on the TT bikes, we're seeing a lot of people go one by, especially on a flatter course where you don't yeah, need it. You got one gear, right? I mean, you can, you might as well just ride a fixed gear bike. Yeah, exactly. Like Save the weight. So. That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious about that whole idea, especially in the classics, because the pro of having a, a one by is you're not going to drop your chain off the front, which is great. Uh, but you've also got a huge travel, in the rear derailleur. I mean, if you get the 12, a uh, 12 speed cassette on the back, that's a long distance and you're stretching that chain out and that derailleur has got to do a lot of work. So there's a lot of potential for something to screw up. Yeah. And it's very interesting to, and I'm not any expert in gear ratios at all, but those jumps are a real thing when you're jumping down and it's a bigger jump than what you've been racing on for yeah. the last six, seven years. That's a real key difference, especially if you're, you know, we always talk about marginal gains. That's a marginal gain. If you miss shift, yep. you're done. I mean, your race can be over in a blink of an eye just because of a missed shift, and maybe you just weren't used to it. And so that's another thing that we will see play out with this one by 12 drivetrains. I think from the consumer side, though, really happy to see it. I think yeah. it's it's the right side for that. But is it right for the pros yet? Still kind of undetermined, but I like, I like the aggressive approach from SRAM to say mm-hmm. the least. You know, the other kind of interesting trend that it's almost going in the in reverse direction is tubeless for the road. You know, I mean, it's sort of a started as a, a t- consumer technology to sh- shave weight, you know, especially in gravel racing and things like that. But now you're really starting to see it more and more in that pro peloton. Yeah. And that, another thing like, like the one by 12 system, I think it's super awesome for the consumer market. The pros though, do they need it? I mean, they can ride. I, I don't ride tubular tires personally because right. if I have to change a flat out on the road, yeah. I can't do it with a tubular tire. It's a disaster. Yeah, exactly. But the pros, they got their team car. And so do they really need to make a switch? Uh, who knows? But the tubeless from a consumer side is a really cool opportunity to see how that, um, I think just for a consumer, it's right in line with what they need. And then the pros as well, the classic seasons is where I think we could see it being yep. really beneficial. So you get those low tire pressures and... Yeah. yeah, and the amount of flats that we see, Roman Bardet already mentioned it last mm-hmm. stage nine of last year's Tour de France. Those couple flats really killed him, and yep. maybe he wouldn't have had those with tubeless tires. Right? So. Yeah, you, you never know. I mean, it certainly pays. It pays a lot of dividends in the in cyclocross, yep. you know, where you can get those super low uh, tire pressures for varying conditions, and you know, maybe you will see more of that in the in the spring classics. Yeah, and definitely cycling is slow to advance in areas like that. But at yeah. least uh, Peter Sagan in the tour down under this year, he rode a crit on an aluminum bike that had disc brakes and tubeless tires, and he took second. So we still do see that even though maybe not all the aero testing and how many watts you save have been finalized, you still got Peter Sagan taking second in a crit at the beginning or in the pro peloton. Yeah, although I think he could probably ride a nice ride bike. Yes, and win. I yeah. think so. So. <laughs> It's uh, it is really interesting to see all these things. And you talked about disc brakes and how much of a fight there was 
in the pro Peloton just a couple years ago when they allowed discs for the first time and people were complaining about it, claiming that they got their legs chopped off because of their disc brakes or whatever. And now it seems like it's really almost par for the course. Yeah. And now I was still, you know, kind of young and learning about how all cycling works in European and my American approach was yeah. like, well, it's a great new innovation. Why totally. are you not putting What's it on wrong these bikes? With you? Seriously. And I'm like, these people are just complaining. They're being babies. <laughs> I understand the the risks that they're taking, but I think where it's really, really taking a leap is on these descents, especially with bad weather. I've yeah. heard a couple of the riders at the start of the day, they, they make the switch to a disc brake because the weather is bad and their braking performance is yep. going to be much better with those disc brakes and so i think at the end of the day if the pros find an advantage with it Mm -hmm. it will be here to stay i think it already is here to stay not all teams have adapted it yet but once these bike brands you know like pinarello hasn't come out with a new f10 recently i would say and so probably in the next iterations of that it'll be disc brake standard and then in order to sell those bikes they need to have their pros riding that bike so i think that's that's kind of uh Maybe why we're seeing a little bit of holdup still with some teams is just their bike sponsor doesn't have that flagship disc brake yeah. bike yet. Yep, you know, It's got to change the uh, experience for the fans, too, with all the squeaking on those disc brakes. Yes. I cannot get my disc brakes on any of my bikes to not squeak. So I can't imagine what those guys are doing. Especially with bad weather, you can right. have perfect disc brakes, but exactly. a little bit of water gets in there yep. and it and is they definitely howl. squealing. They yes. howl. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. You talked about descending in some of those bad weather conditions because those guys take a ton of risk on yes. those descents. It's crazy to watch that. I think that was Bob Youngles last year in the yeah. Tour de France who went over the side of that. And that's where that that new arrow tuck position, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are against it right. because of the safety concerns. People come in so much hotter into a corner than Absolutely. what they think. Yep. And with the disc brakes, it is very interesting. I don't know all of the science per se, but that you can go faster by braking more efficiently. Right. That part is fascinating. It is really fascinating. Being able to stop better is going to make you faster in the long run. So definitely descending, being able to have a little bit more fine touching with those Mm -hmm. disc brakes will make them faster in the long run. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's always fun to see some of that new technology come uh, come into the fold and, and, you know, see how it plays out. Uh, for those guys, because then it always makes you want to get more stuff for your bike, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And plus one on like every cycling accessory. So and being whatever you want it to be, you always yeah. need one more piece of kit. So and that's try and- a hard thing, right? I mean, how do you draw the line between, OK, what I've got is good. Right. Yeah, it uh, it's definitely takes a mental shift. Right now, I'm battling with that internally on myself. I want to throw a new arrow cockpit on my bike and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm in the bike industry, so at least I can save some money that way, sure. but still it's like, it's, it's a big investment and you just gotta be like, you know what? Those five Watts of savings for myself, it's not going to do the trick to make me just automatically win races. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm good with where I'm at. And then you have your, your wife or significant other tell you to stop as well. That's a pretty good <laughs> that's one. That's right. Yeah. That's a, definitely a, a value. You want to keep uh, harmony across the board. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I sort of have gotten myself to the point where I'm looking for my forever bikes now. You know, I've got I've had the fun bikes and I've had all kinds of things, but now I'm starting to settle in where uh, I kind of want to pick that one. And I'm hopeful that uh, I'll have that because on Monday, uh, a friend of mine is sending me his uh, Colnago CT1. Oh, exciting! And uh, it's a beautiful bike. I had a chance to ride it this uh, uh, this past winter, and it's absolutely just a stunning comfortable, beautiful bike. That's awesome. New yeah. bike day, regardless if it's a $200 fixed gear bike right. or a $10,000 bike, it's yep. exciting. So. Yeah. And I've wanted to have a titanium bike for a really long time. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that this is my forever bike. That's sweet. And I think we're, we're in the age two of those forever bikes where we're getting these, these gravel adventure bikes that you can mm-hmm. swap out the wheel set for, you know, that's a thousand dollar upgrade to your bike. It's now road ready. It's yeah. gravel ready. It's pack dirt ready, you know, yep. it's bike packing ready, whatever you want. You yeah. can kind of do have that one bike that does everything. I'm excited about, about that concept. You know, it's really kind of allowing you to narrow your, your stable and, and have the right tool for a lot of different jobs. And the emergence of titanium too, is uh, just bringing back how long these bikes can last yeah. as well. My other bike that I really love is my twin six Rando. Yes. Uh, local guys here, of course. And, uh, we were binge watching Russian doll on Netflix the other night and in the background in one of the characters apartments, I'm like, is that my bike? <laughs> and so we, we paused it and I'm like, I think that's my bike. And sure enough, I uh, actually emailed Ryan from twin six, uh, on Thursday, I guess. And he said, yep, they, uh, they put the twin six Rando oh, that's super in cool. Russian doll. Yeah. So I think it's about episode 
four or five when it, it shows up, but it's in a couple of different episodes. Yeah, I got to go check that out. That no, was that, really, cool. really cool. Yeah, I was very impressed with that. It's been really fun hanging out and talking with you. I mean, we're almost, jeez, uh, it's almost been an hour already. I know. I kind of kept looking at the time like, well, I wonder how much we have left. And yeah, we're already at the end. So yeah. this has been an absolute blast getting to to talk about all the pro cycling stuff. And I hope all the listeners enjoyed it as well. Yeah. You know, uh, we should remind people where to find Cycling with Watts. Yeah, Cycling with Watts. You can find it on really any big podcast, uh, Spotify out there, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, that, that's where you can find it. And like I said, try to post about once a week, usually on Tuesdays is when, when I post, I try to keep them uh, pretty condensed, you know, in that, that half hour 45 range. And if you speed up the podcast, get it done quicker. That's okay. <laughs> as long as you hit play on it. So, yeah, well, it's been, it's been really fun having you in the, uh, in the studio, Jared. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Before we head out, we want to just to remind everybody of all the events happening around uh, town here in the next uh, few weeks. 30 Days of Biking, of course, kicks off uh, on Monday. There's a Building Bike Community uh, presentation today. Actually, Patrick and Mario are going to be doing that, I think, at the REI uh, in uh, Bloomington. And then there are kickoff parties at uh, Red Stag tomorrow and in two harbors. So be sure to get your kickoff party underway. And then on uh, April 27th is Meesville 56. The Minnesota Ironman bike ride is on June 15th. And the Southside Sprint State Championship Criterium is on July 21st. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. To ride it where I like You say black, I say white You say bar, I say bite You say shark, I say him And George was never my scene And I don't like Star Wars You say Rose, I say Royce You say God, give me a choice You say Lord, I say Christ I don't believe in Peter Pan, Frankenstein or Superman I don't wanna be a candidate for Vietnam, I wanna gain Cause all I wanna 